0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to 2 Peter, chapter 3. Does anyone own a Pinto? Anyone? No? Would anyone be insulted if I, if I made a Pinto seem a little less appealing? Anyone? I don't want to offend you. What would you rather have, a Pinto or a Ferrari? Maybe you don't want a Ferrari, so let, let's say a Pinto or a really nice Buick, or a Pinto or a really nice Ford Taurus, or a Chevy Impala. I'm going with, with the American-made cars here except for the Ferrari. What would you rather have? Like you get the ordinary, um, no frills, hopefully you can crank the windows down and it makes it somewhere Pinto, or something that maybe is a little bit more comfortable as you drive there. What, what would you rather have? I'm going with the other thing. I've never owned a Pinto. I don't think I've ever been in a Pinto. I can't remember the last time I saw a Pinto. uh, But I don't want one. Because it's not appealing. Um, Maybe for you it might be. So I hope you're not offended by that. What's the point of that thought? I don't think that we want to be the Pinto. When it comes to reflecting our Savior. We don't want to be ordinary. We don't want to be blah, boring, or ineffective. We don't want to be average. We want want to be, ready for this? You'll be surprised when I say this. We want to be supernatural. We want to be supernatural. See, there's flesh and there's spirit. We can reside in the flesh and be like everyone else, ordinary, average, and typical. Or it can be in the Spirit, and that which is demonstrated by the Spirit in our lives is supernatural. It's off the charts. It's other than ordinary. We don't want to be your ordinary Joe or your average Joe. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3. Before we read the text, I'm actually going to read the whole chapter Chapter 3. We're only going to focus in on a portion of it, but we'll read the whole chapter just for some enjoyable Bible reading. But before we do that, let's take a moment and pray together. Father, you are amazing. You are everything other than ordinary. You've told us that you are holy, completely different than we are. You are Perfect in all of your perfections, all of your attributes—they're perfect. You're perfectly righteous and perfectly just, and perfectly loving and perfectly kind and perfectly long-suffering. Your mercy is perfect. Your truth is perfect. Everything about you is perfect, and and we are amazed by you, and we we admire you, and we worship you. We ask that you'd help us tonight as we consider. The text in Second Peter, as well as just the truth of, of what you've called us to be. We ask that you'd help us to be encouraged and challenged. That we would leave here with a passion, with a burden. That we would leave here empowered by your grace. That though we may do ordinary things, because we are human... We don't want our lives to be stamped by ordinary, but rather by your amazing divine power. May we see that, may we be embracing that, and may you use us amazingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this, beforehand beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked but grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ to him be the glory both now and forever amen he paints a beautiful picture a morbid picture a challenging picture he paints a picture of maybe some elements of what we experience right now with scoffers. He says, where is the promise of his coming? Where's this promise? Didn't he promise, and and where is he? Well, he tells us in verse 10, don't worry, the day of the Lord will come. It, It will come. You don't have to worry. They can scoff all they want to scoff. In fact, if you think about the time of duration between when God promised Adam and Eve that He would send a deliverer in Genesis 3.15, and when the Lord Jesus actually came in the fullness of time, we know it was at some 4,000 plus years, right? In the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we know that when God promises something, there may be a a delay. There may be a delay, but there will not be a default. True? So there may be questions. People may doubt the coming of the Lord. But God says, the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night. And so he starts to talk about what that day of the Lord will look like. It it seems unpleasant. I'd say it starts off pretty unpleasant and it ends pretty... Pleasantly, doesn't it? It starts off with fire and, and judgment and the elements melting and, and the, the earth being dissolved. I'd say the concept there is more a reconstitution where the, the, the very earth itself is, is burned to the point where uh, all of the current elements are not as they currently are. The curse will be burned off essentially and God reconstitutes that same uh, earth and, and it's a new creation, a new earth that is, is beautiful and perfect again. So there's this judgment coming. All these elements will melt with a fervent heat. What we're interested in are some of these directives. For instance, in verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, since this is going to happen, since this day of the Lord will come, and this judgment will come, and all that we see and hear and feel and touch and taste, all of this will be dissolved and be different, since all of this will be, what manner of persons ought you to be? Now, that's an interesting question, and he's not talking about, he's not talking about average stuff. When you see this phrase used throughout the Scripture, and, and it's used, this concept of what manner of, what manner of, you'll notice that it's usually very exclamatory. I want to to look at a couple of these passages. Take a look at Matthew chapter 8 for a moment. We'll start reading in verse 23. And Matthew pens these words, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us! We are perishing! But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, What can this be? This is the same exact phrasing that, that uh, Peter used in 2 Peter chapter 3. What, what can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're not sitting there saying, oh, I wonder what this is all about. What do you think the expression on their faces, what were their expressions like when they said, what is all of this? What manner of person is this that he says, peace be still, and the sea is calm? What kind of person is this? That's an exclamatory question. It's extraordinary. Take a look over at Mark chapter 13. If you've been into the mountains, either in New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, or maybe if you've been to the, the Grand Canyon, or if you've been on the other side, all the way over to the West Coast, and you were on uh, Big Sur in California, and you look out and you can see the water, or any one of these places, you can see the mountains, you can see the valley, you can see the Grand Canyon, you see any one of these things. When you look out there and you look at it and, and you say, well, that's pretty nice. Is, is that what you say? This last um, October, we went up to New Hampshire, and we went to a, a place that we, we rent from time to time. It's called Steel Hills Resort. And we had this, this room, and we were kind of disappointed. We were in the, a different building than we wanted to be in. This is called um, First World Problems. <laughs> we went, and we got into the room, went down the stairs, and we're like, okay, well, we're over here. And we get into the room, and we look out the window, Oh, my. You could see all the turning leaves down into a valley and up uh, across to a, a big lake and then up the other side mountains. It was spectacular. Every morning we woke up and we had to look at that. It was amazing. You say, oh, that's, that's pretty nice. That, that's not how you express things, right? When you see something that's spectacular, there's, there's a, kind of an exclamation that comes forth. Well, take a look here in Mark chapter 13. 13. The disciples are with Jesus on the temple mount, and here's what they say. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? You see what he's, he's saying? This is magnificent. Look at this place. Same phraseology as back in 2 Peter chapter 3. Take a look over at Luke chapter 1. Verse 26. this was. This is, this is not what I experience every day. I haven't encountered the angel Gabriel before. What kind of a greeting is this? Look at over at Luke chapter 7. Luke 7. Beginning in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, a.k.a. prostitute, a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet uh, behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who, touched, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You know what? She, this is not just your typical girl. It's not like the girl next door. Sweet little uh, Sarah Mae, she came over with her bread. And says, oh, I, this is not that kind of person. This is an extraordinary person. If he knew what kind of a person this was, what, what's up with this? And then one last illustration or, or passage. You don't need to turn there. It's a familiar passage. In 1 John chapter 3, and verse 1, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. What kind of love is this? I've never experienced love like this before. That's the kind of exclamation that we're talking about. So, head back to 2 Peter chapter 3. He's not talking about your average situation. He wants us to see something extraordinary. And he says in verse 11, therefore, Since all these things will be dissolved, what kind of people, what sort of people, what manner of people ought we to be? If we're just like everybody else, we're just ignoring everything we know. What what kind of person ought we to be? And the, the answer to that, just before we even get into the details, extraordinary. Extraordinary. Perfect? No, we, we're not going to be perfect. Now, the, the call here, there's some calls to perfection here. Um, that will only take place when? When will, when will that perfection take place? Well, Yeah, so, so ultimately that perfection that will never end is when we're in heaven. But there is perfection periods here on earth, are there not? When we're empowered by the Spirit, are we not then operating in righteousness and holiness and truth? Are we then not demonstrating love and joy and peace? Aren't there supernatural things taking place when we're empowered by the Spirit? Absolutely. So, so there are times, there are periods of holiness. What kind of person ought we to be when we know all this is taking place? Well, he starts to tell us what kind of extraordinary people we should be. First of all, we should have holy conduct. Holy conduct. It says at the end of verse 11, what, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct? Verse 11, uh, excuse me, verse 14, he says a similar thing. He says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace. What does it say now? Without spot and blameless. So he's got that same concept of holiness again. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you holy? Do you feel confident about that? You should feel confident about that. I want to look at a passage, we've looked at it before. I probably couldn't turn you into any passages you haven't seen before. Most of us, right? Let's look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. Beginning in, we're just going to look at verse 12. He says in Colossians 3, 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, Long suffering. He just told you, since God has chosen you, since God has grabbed you, since God has saved you, you are holy and you are loved. There's it's not in question. It's not in question about whether you're holy or loved. That is a fact. It's based upon God's work. You're holy and loved. Take a look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who, what does it say? Are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does sanctified mean? Alright. Did you know that it's the same word for holy? So when he says you are sanctified, he's saying you are holy. So don't, don't, don't... Well, we've got this really high-level word, sanctified... Set apart. It's true, it does mean set apart. I'm not correcting you, but it also means holy. It says, these Corinthians are holy. Then it says they're called. Now, you see the, those next two little words in, in your New King James, they're they're crooked. It's called italics. To be. That's supplied. It just says called saints. You know what the word saints is in? It means holy. Called holy. Now. What do you know about the Corinthians? What's that? So, we, so we, got, we got God calling them holy and us calling them worldly. We got a problem, Houston. <laughs> the reality is a person that has come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, the records have been changed. There's a holy record. We are sanctified in Christ. Sanctified in Christ. Now, are there times that that holiness is not on display? And I think that is more what Peter's getting at than the fact that we are holy because of our relationship with Jesus. I love that concept, I stand on that concept, I want to chew on that concept, meditate on that concept, I want to write that concept down so I don't forget that concept because I don't always feel very holy. You? I get disgusted with myself as I am assured that you are disgusted with yourself because your actions don't always line up with what you want to be, what you ought to be either. So we get frustrated, but... We can, we can have solace in the fact that God says I'm holy. Say, I feel better about this because God will never let me go. Okay? On the other hand, what Peter is talking about is not that position. Now he's talking about a condition. He says, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy what, conduct? Now we're talking about actions. Take a look at Romans chapter 12. Again, it's a familiar passage. Romans chapter twelve. In the first eight chapters of Romans, we've gone from recognizing how deeply we need Jesus because we're sinners, and all the world is guilty before him. That's the first three chapters. Then you come into chapter four, and he tells us and, and five and tells us about justification by faith. And then he gets into chapter 6, 7, and 8 and he talks about the fact that we have this position with God and we don't have to be dominated any longer by our flesh. Um, When we try to please God with our flesh, we find ourselves frustrated. That's what we see in chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, we see that we have victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, he gives us that that interplay between the the flesh and the spirit, and he talks about how we can fulfill the righteous demands of the law by the spirit. So this is good. We're finding out about sanctification in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Then 9, 10, and 11, we see God's sovereignty. Then he comes to chapter 12, having established all this about our position and our relationship to God, and now he starts to to put the, the... The practical out there where the rubber meets the road, and he says in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, or in accordance with the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. One of the characteristics of that living sacrifice is that it must be what? Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He tells us we need to to give ourselves, but he doesn't just take any old offering. Right? What kind of offerings did he take in the Old Testament? Spotless. Spotless. So, So in order to please God, I have to make myself holy, and then I can offer myself. That's not the concept. The concept is when we offer ourselves, we actually offer ourselves. It's easy to give God a little nod. Oh, yeah, yeah, I I remember that you're there. I remember that you're there, and, and, you know, I'll give you this, you this little trite gift. Whether it be a, a check on a Sunday or, or this little service thing that I do on some Saturday or Wednesday or whatever the case may be, this trite little thing. It's like, here, God, here's this thing. Here's, I'll, I'll throw you a bone as if He needs it. We need to be careful and to understand what really this Christian life is all about. When we talk about giving God a, a living sacrifice, we're saying, here I am, God, here I am. This, my life is yours. He'll do the work of making it holy. Right? I don't make myself holy and then offer myself to God. That will never, ever, 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 ever happen. I give myself to God. Let Him take care of the holiness. Peace. Now, if we if we say we're giving ourselves to God and we're doing all manner of things in opposition to that, do we really? Do we really give ourselves to the Lord? The answer is no. So, The holiness, the the practical holiness conduct tells us whether we have indeed yielded ourselves to the Lord. So when Peter says, what kind of people should we be in all holy conduct? He's not saying, hey, listen, go out and figure out how to be holy. It's not going to work. What he's telling us is, learn how to yield yourself to God and the holiness will be produced. He's the only one that can produce it. Holiness. Now, Holiness, while it's related to sinlessness, that's not, that's not the entirety of its understanding. Holiness is distinction. Distinction. The concept there is that there is no God like our God. That's what makes him holy. And if we're going to be extraordinary in holiness, it means that the way that we go about our lives is completely different. You know, you look at the way that so many Christian realms have turned in these days. It's trying to like make people happy with them. You know what? You'll never, we'll never both please the world so that they'll like us and demonstrate clearly who God is. It'll never happen. What happens is, We demonstrate Christ and God and the truth and people will either embrace Him or reject Him. That's that's the way the Christian life works. It's not pleasing God while pleasing people and trying to gain them. No, we offer them who God is. And if they don't want Him, they're not really going to like heaven a whole lot. What's heaven about, friends? Heaven's about him, isn't it? It's not about the fruit trees, though they'll be there. It's not about the river of life, though it will be there. It's not about the streets of gold that are clear as crystal, though they'll be there. It's not about the angelic beings, though they'll be there. It's not about those things. Don't be mad. Don't be mad. It's not about your Uncle Harold that went ahead of you. I'm just going to pause for a second. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, I can't wait to get to heaven and see. And the is not Jesus. Ready? Wrong answer. Can I, do I understand? Yes, I do. I understand. I, I, there are people I, I am happy to look forward to seeing again. So I'm not saying that that's not an important thing to say, um, but just remember that heaven's not about them either. You know there are so many unbelievers in this world that they hear the gospel and it sounds good to them, and it sounds palatable to them, and it sounds like I I want that. I want what you have. I want to believe what you believe. But if I believe that. I have to say that mom or dad or uncle or Sarah, you know, these people, they're not going to be there. So if I, if I believe what you believe, then, then heaven really can't be heaven at all. And that's because they don't know who God is. It's like, it sounds right, it's, it's like the, the, the truth is doing his, his work, but the Spirit hasn't illumined their eyes to see who God really is. Because when you see who God is, you don't want something else. You want Him. Holy. When we live for God in a conduct that is holy it does one of two things to people. They'll either say I like what that God does or I don't like what that God does and I don't mean to be cruel I'm okay with that. Now I want the former right? I want them to want the God who I know, I want them to want him but I'm that's out of my control. I can't manipulate that. And I don't want to manipulate that. That's not my place. That's a God thing. That's, that's, that's his business. What I want to do is make sure that I represent clearly who he is. What manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conduct? Head back there to Second Peter chapter 3. Are you excited? We get to this next point portion, still in verse 11, he just says, and godliness. And godliness. We ought to be extraordinary in our godliness. It's easy to chalk this one up and write this one off because we think the guy that's in jail or in the bar or in the brothel doing his thing we think that guy's ungodly and we the, the church people we're godly we just think well I go to church and I put on my clothes the right way and I, I don't have um, weird piercings and markings on my body and my hair is just the right length I must be godly and the fact is that is not the definition of godliness at all not at all Godliness is related to a consciousness of god, consciousness. you know what does consciousness mean well i'm i'm aware of him and i'm I'm thoughtful of him and i'm 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 meditative of him. It can be defined as piety or reverence. Jerry Bridges gives a really good definition of of this concept he says ungodliness may def- be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of god or of god's will or of god's glory or of one's dependence on god I'm going to read it again <clears throat> ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of god or of god's will or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. On the other hand, Simon Kistemacher writes, a Christian practices godliness when he is fully conscience, conscious of God's presence in every circumstance, so that his life is guided by the motto, korem dio, which means in the presence of God. Do you realize, yes you do, theologically we've got all this down in our heads, Right? Everywhere you go, God's there. So we're in his presence. We're even a little bit more theologically astute than that. We know that when we trust Christ as our Savior, God comes to live in us. We're, we're theologically sound in this regard. You ready? Have you ever been in a situation where you were like making sure no one saw what you were doing? Like you, maybe you weren't doing something terrible. Maybe you were eating one extra cookie and you didn't want anyone to notice. Or, I don't know, I don't want to get gross. Just certain things you don't want other people seeing. You do, or uh, there are things that you might think. You ever find yourself like, I, I don't want anyone to see this. You can't, you're not out of God's presence. Not only is he there because he's everywhere, he's there because he's in you. You think about that? That God consciousness is a way toward godliness because we're recognizing I'm with the Lord. The Lord is with me. He's in me. He's for me. He's, he's operable within me. This is, this is good news. What does godliness look like? Well, that's, that's harder to define. Because godliness is a conscious awareness of God in every phase of life, godliness impacts our church life, our home life, our work life, everywhere we go, our social life when we're at work, when we're not working, um, whether we're working in the presence of our employer, whether we're working in the absence of our employer. Godliness says, I am not doing this first and foremost for my paycheck. I am not doing this first and foremost for my employer's pleasure... I am doing this first and foremost as service to my king. In Ephesians chapter 6, familiar passage, beginning of verse 6, he says, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And we looked at it in Colossians. We studied this not too long ago. In Colossians three twenty-two and following, bond servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. Now, this concept of godliness, this consciousness of God, impacts us as as employers or employees. It it, it impacts us as husbands and as wives, as parents and children, as friends. Um, when we live out our lives in the presence of the Lord, not that we can ever be out of the presence of the Lord, but with that conscious awareness of the presence of the Lord, what a difference that would make. What a difference that would make. This, this concept of godliness is very, very important. And Peter makes it so. He says, what kind of people should you be? In a conduct that is first, holy, secondly, godly. What is the source, then, of this godliness? Is it just trying really hard to always think that God is around That sounds like a fleshly mechanism, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That is a fleshly mechanism. And just let me remind you this. It's a good fleshly mechanism, right? But it's still flesh. And Jesus said, that which is of the flesh is flesh. So I don't think that we found the key to our godliness by just saying, okay, I know that I'm in God's presence and I know that God's in me, so I better think about this. There might be more. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and what? And godliness. How does it come? Through the knowledge of him who called you by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. We can keep reading, but the concept is there already. God's given us everything we need through understanding Him, through our relationship with Him, through through knowing Him. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 9, He says, "I, I don't cease to pray for you that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You know what happens when you have that controlling knowledge of God? That it might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him in every way, pleasing Him in every way, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. The the godliness that we seek comes from Him by knowing Him. You can't hope to live the Christian life without knowing the Word. There's a reason He gave it to us. It's it's something we should nourish or or, um, thirst after and hunger after as a newborn babe thirsts after the pure milk of the word, right? Uh, excuse me, after, after milk. So we've got this, this concept that, that there's this thirst and hunger. If you look at contrasting 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the last few verses, 16 through 18, and James chapter 1, verse 25, what you'll notice is the longer we keep our eyes fixed on what God has given us, the Spirit of God does something amazing. He brings us from glory to glory. It happens by the Spirit of the Lord. He uses the Word, and what He does is He nurtures us, and He nourishes us, and He gives us this godly affection. It doesn't come from us. There are elements that are important, though. Getting in the Word, being together like this. Some people don't value this. You obviously do. Most of you are here every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. Every opportunity that you have. The reason that that's so important is not because it's, it's this religious, oh, I have to be there because it's, 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 I'll be a good doobie if I come. It's, first of all, you recognize that you're worshiping God, right? That's the first thing. Secondly, you realize you can minister to other people by being here. You may not even have the perfect magic words to give them, but you're here and you're ministering to them by your presence. Secondly, or, or thirdly, you're, you're learning God's word. You're letting God's word enter in. And you know what the psalmist said? Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is, this is important. So we allow God's word to do this work. How do I become godly? Well, I don't think that there's an answer to that per se other than this concept that we're talking about, this meditation. I, I think that we can all identify with the words of come thou fount. O oh, to grace How great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. God, I need you. God, I need you. That's the constant refrain of the godly person's heart. God, I need you. I need your grace. I need your help. I can't be everything that you want me to be. I want to. I want to. I want to shine the light in my office. I want to shine the light in the pulpit. I want to shine the light on the phone. I want to shine a light uh, in the hospital. I want to shine a light in my house, on the road, in the marketplace, wherever. I want to shine the light. But I can't do it. I can't do it of my own accord. I can't do it just because I want to. It's this surrender of the heart. Surrender of the will. Lord, I need you. And when there's that surrender of the heart, it really is an unstoppable force, because it's not a force. You know what it is? It's divine power. It's grace. It's the Spirit of God. It's God himself at work in us. So here's what he says. You see, all these things taking place, everything all, all going on that's coming your way, I, 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 I want you to, to be extraordinary in your conduct, that you have holy conduct, and that you'll have this God consciousness all the time. And then I, there's a one other area I want to mention, and that is an extraordinary expectation. Take a look at verse uh, back in chapter three, verses 12 and following. He uses the word "look" three times, different forms, looking for, we look for, looking forward to. He wants us to be looking at this. Second, Peter, chapter three, beginning in verse 12 looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace. So I, I, there's this, this looking. You know that God says there's a, there's a crown for the one who loves his appearing? You know what? I'll tell you what. <laughs> If you and I are looking for his appearing as a constancy, that consciousness thing, that God consciousness thing, it's there because I'm looking for him. I'm waiting. It's as if he said, I'm coming tomorrow. Okay, I'm waiting for him. He's coming tomorrow. It's as if he said, I'm coming today. You're like, all right, is it going to be next? No, no, Now? This expectation. When is he coming? Is he coming? Anyone? Anyone? Any thoughts? Is he coming? That's what verse 10 says. It says, "But the day of the Lord—that's that's that's His presence, right? The day of the Lord will come. When? I don't know. Are you looking forward to it, though? You should be looking for it. I should be looking for it. But you know what happens? Life happens, and we have to do the dishes, and we've got to clean our clothes, and we've got to clean up after the dog, and we've got to wash the windows, and we've got to to change the oil in the car, and we've got to go to work, we've got to pay the bills, and it all kind of crowds in, and we lose." Our expectation. Because it's been how many years? Well, for me, it's been 39. For you, it's been blank years. I'm not going to go into all that. It's been however many, and he hasn't come yet. What are you looking for him? Why is it so great to look for him? Listen, you look around the world right now, it's fouled up. One day, when Jesus comes, all the wrongs, all the wrongs, be made right. Those who were lame, those who were the outcast, those who were afflicted, he's going to do what? He 's going to make them the remnant a strong nation, and the Lord himself will reign over them. the concept i, I didn 't communicate very well this morning he 's going to care for them. The king cares for his subjects. Think about the difference between those two sets of descriptors that 's what that 's coming that 's what 's coming. We look at the kingdom and we can get stuck on all the details don't don 't miss that look at the difference. everything will be different, including our relationship with him but we'll go from imperfect right now because of us to perfect then because it'll all the variables will be taken out of the way let's take a moment to pray together father help us that we would anticipate with fondness and enthusiasm the coming of our savior and we say with the apostle john even so come lord jesus we pray as the lord jesus Exemplified in this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're looking forward to that will being very evidently displayed here in, in this place that you've made. That you'll restore all things. The curse will be removed, sorrows and pain gone, and joy unspeakable and full of glory. Even so come, Lord Jesus.